0: Thank you for listening to season two of spotless breaking the boundaries of television presented by two media powerhouses triple lift and advertising week spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution so you know listen up evolution we came from monkeys now we're humans who knows where we are next you're going to learn something on this podcast Advertising executive, digital media entrepreneur, and public speaker. Shannon Reed is highly sought-after thought leader, regularly presenting at major advertising and digital media industry conferences. Her insights and opinions have been cited in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Ad Age, Media Post, Huffington Post, Adweek, and Women's Wear Daily. As SVP Head of Media for L'Oreal, Shenan is responsible for elevating the quality of consumer connections for the L'Oreal USA brand. An entrepreneurial business leader with over 20 years experience, Shenan previously led the GSK and Verizon Power of One solutions for publicists and led the L'Oreal business and digital practice at Wavemaker. Prior to her tenure at Wavemaker, Shannon found the digital marketing agency, Morpheus Media, which became renowned for her to work with premier, luxury, fashion, and retail clients. Shannon, welcome to Spotless.
1: Thanks, Rahel.
0: We are uh, definitely very excited to have you here on season two, but let's get started by talking kind of about your spectacular career thus far. Uh, Can you share a little bit about how your experience working on the agency side led you to your current role as head of media at L'Oreal?
1: Sure, I'd be delighted to. I it's been an interesting journey. I was just on a call, an internal call about career trajectories with a group of our young talent, uh, how, trying to help them figure out and how they navigate their careers and plan and path to the places where where they want to go. And I had to smile as I was listening in on that conversation because they did ask, "How did you plan your career?" And I would love to tell you that I had some grand plan, some well thought out collection of steps that I was going to do that got me to where I am today. Uh, I think more so the answer for me has been, it's been a path of following really interesting topics and opportunities. I would honestly say none of it's been planned. I started in—I uh, started as a musical theater actress, as you know, many, 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 many years ago as a kid. Spent 18 years doing musical theater. Loved every minute of it, but had a moment in my early 20s where I realized I was good enough to not have to wait tables in New York City as a second job, but not good enough to have my name above the marquee. And I thought things like, you don't know, health insurance and normal day job hours were probably a good thing to have as a as an adult, as a budding adult. Uh, this is before the term adulting got to be a thing. Uh, so I was, I guess, <laughs> early in my ideas that I should look to, to do some adulting in my life. And I started to pursue an opportunity in data and analytics. I know that sounds like a complete left turn from musical theater, but I've always been good at math and good at analytics and enjoy trying to follow where consumers' minds are going. And it just seemed like a great opportunity to bring those things together. So I started working for a CPG analytics firm, uh, studying consumers and trying to help them use the data that was available to us at the time from Nielsen and IRI and Scarborough and Claritas and uh, the U.S. Census to understand to understand how a consumer would perceive a product, who the ideal consumer was for, let's say, a new product that was coming to market, what SKUs belonged in what stores geographically, how many facings of a product they should have on the store shelf, and help them pull together all of the data that would tell these stories to help sell it in the, sell in the product, either from a, a consumer marketing perspective or into their, their customers at the retailers. And I just found the data fascinating. What I realized, though, is it was the early days of digital. So this was 1999. And... The data that I had from the offline world was fascinating, but it was based on surveys and um, then projected to reach the entire U.S. population. Statistically significant, no doubt, but still a projection based on 50,000 households, 3,000 survey respondents, things like that. Someone came into my life at the time uh, through my husband who had a digital media agency, and he started to show us some of the things that he could do with the data that he had available to them. And there was this really cool thing called the cookie. (sighs) (laughs) which was really awesome. And the cookie had this tremendous promise, right? It would take you Rahil and say that you are cookie number four, five, seven, eight, nine. And you saw my ad on this day at this time. And then a few days later you saw my ad again, but it was a different ad on this day at this time. And then a few days later you direct loaded my website and made a purchase. And because of this cookie, I could attribute that purchase to all of those places and it just seemed to me like this was the holy grail of being able to truly track and prove that advertising wasn't wasted, that old adage that 50% of my advertising is wasted. And it just seemed like a tremendous opportunity to, to kind of pull this thread through and I got very excited about it. He offered me a job in a digital media agency. I started doing ad serving and trafficking because it was the connection to the pipes and the data and connecting to the consumer very quickly because the world was blowing up at the time for digital media. I was leading the New York Times account and AltaVista, the search engine AltaVista, spending ridiculous sums of money every single week trying to get them into the media metrics top 10, which we did. Um, driving New York Times home delivery, subscription home delivery, which was also extremely successful uh, at the time. Loved every minute of it. Loved having my hands in the data and being able to truly drive consumer outcomes in a very direct consumer way. It was very exciting. And then, uh, obviously, the dot-com bubble burst around us. That was not as exciting, not nearly as fun. (laughs) And we started... We started to watch a lot of companies fold and Alta Vista pulled back. We, I think we all know how their story ultimately ended. Uh, the New York Times stuck around, though, and it was a tremendous opportunity. Uh, the agency that I was working at decided it was going to become a consultancy, uh, and they were looking for somebody else to pick up their clients. And I saw an opportunity to continue to run the media for the clients that I had in the way that I thought was best fit to produce consumer performance and great consumer outcomes. And so I started my own digital media agency in 2001 called Morpheus Media, ran Morpheus for 14 years. Uh, that list that you just read of customers, clients of mine over the years are some of the biggest luxury brands in the ecosystem that I had the honor of, of helping shepherd into the world of digital media in the very early days, including seven L'Oreal brands. Uh, it's interesting in, inside L'Oreal, we often talk about L'Orealians or, or um people who are L'Oreal babies, people who grew up in the L'Oreal ecosystem. And I I kind of joke that I'm not a L'Oreal baby because I haven't been with L'Oreal my entire career, but I've been working on L'Oreal brands since 2002. So I've been a part of the ecosystem Mm -hmm. in and out in different ways over the years. I have a lot of passion for the brands and for the business. It's been really a lot of fun to watch their digital media trajectory. But I stayed on the agency side. I grew my own agency. 14 years, I ran Morpheus, ultimately sold it, moved on after that to go to WPP and run digital at WaveMaker or MEC at the time and then ultimately WaveMaker. Uh, and then from there into Publicist where you and I got to meet uh, between my time on Verizon and then ultimately on, on Platform GSK and then got a phone call from L'Oreal asking if there was an opportunity for me to consider coming back um, and being a part of the, the ecosystem on the inside. And I think there's such an amazing... Um, There's such an amazing opportunity to take years of experience of seeing across all of these different clients, across everything that these clients have done and experienced being so steeply (laughs) deep, deeply steeped, I should correct myself, in digital uh, over that that period of time that I found a, a tremendous opportunity to bring all of that knowledge to bear on behalf of one very specific client. And I could really hone in on... If I'm going to to help be a part of this organization from the inside out, I want to help make the decisions I always wished my clients would make, because I've got the background to help drive some of the that decisioning, and I've got the background with this business specifically uh, to understand their business as well as I do. And it's so exciting to be on the inside because I'm learning things about the sides of the of the business that I never knew: how products are made, how they actually get shipped and delivered, uh, the ingredients, and and how things are developed and inspired. It's so much fun to be on this side of it.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's definitely an incredible career thus far. And it, and it sounds like it's a little full circle, you know, working with L'Oreal for so long and, and now kind of being on the inside. And, you know, L'Oreal has been around for over a hundred years and is quite frankly, the number one beauty company in the world. And, you know, you mentioned a lot about data and your and your enthusiasm and, and incredible experience with data. Curious to hear, how do you keep up with a lot of the industry and consumer trends, and and, and how do you continue to stay relevant and maintain a position as the leading brand, beauty brand, uh, in the industry?
1: Part of that is having great partners and great talent. And I truly believe that when you have great talent, both inside your organization and in the partners that you work with, you can accomplish great things. I'm a firm believer in trying to keep up with, obviously, what's happening in the industry. I think we all are. I don't read nearly as much as I would like to, partially because I just simply don't have time. And I I know your audience can't see us right now, but if you could, you would see there's a book behind me uh, titled Overcoming Dyslexia. I'm dyslexic. My daughter's dyslexic. It's not that I can't read, clearly I can, but I'm not the fastest reader. So when I can listen to a podcast or when I can have a conversation, and those are the pieces that get really exciting to me, spending a half an hour with you, Rahul, and and brainstorming about what's happening in the industry and hearing your take on things and somebody else's take on things is how I start to stitch together all of the different pieces that we're hearing from the different parts of the organization. And I think there's something very empowering about the community Uh, in this or in this, uh, in this industry. So I do a lot of my personal keeping up by maintaining the connections that I have in the industry and maintaining conversations with friends and colleagues, either my peers at other uh, companies or partners that I've worked with either on the sales side or on the agency side. And then within my, obviously within my own team and within the agency that I, that I work with as L'Oreal, I think all of that brings itself to bear, On behalf of our brands, because you've got people who are constantly trying to stay on that edge and see what the future is. Now, we're picky. We're not going to chase every single shiny object, right? And we get the opportunity truly to chase every single shiny object. And we have to take those moments to step back and say, that's really interesting, but is it consumer safe? Is it brand safe? Are we going to stay on the right side of history when it comes to a user's data, privacy, uh, disclosure, et cetera. And, and we will turn down opportunities that don't keep us on, that don't, uh, protect the things that we want to protect and hold dear. Um, even if they could put us on the the cutting edge of something, but we do like to be on the cutting edge whenever, whenever we can. And I think we do a, a pretty good job of it, especially in beauty. Part of that is being fearless, uh, about testing some of the things that we test and being willing to play when our partners bring us those opportunities.
0: Just to, just to kind of expand on your your point there, you know, what are what are some of those things that you're doing uh, in an effort to attract and maintain, you know, the next generation of consumers? You, like we mentioned, L'Oreal's been around for over a hundred years, and, and that can only be possible by continuing to maintain relevancy with the new generations. So, curious to hear how, what you guys are doing now to attract now the next generation uh, here in the twenty first century.
1: Sure. There is an incredible thing happening. We've heard about the growth of direct consumer, the growth of e-commerce in this past year, that we've gained, you know, 10 years in one, five years in one, depending on who you talk to and what metric you're looking at. It's been, it's been a tremendous opportunity. I think, especially during COVID, there was this moment that I realized that when you and I would sit down and look at a a research study about what the number one influence thing was on a a consumer, it was almost always the first thing on the list is almost always friends and family, right? And you see that like friends and family response and you go, yep, great, that's awesome. What's number two? Because I can't necessarily influence those. Um, And so you just move down the list as a a marketer and as as an advertiser to say, okay, all right, now I'm gonna go to social media or email or whatever that second and third option is friends and family became a really tough area for consumers to have access to over the course of the past year. So there became these proxies to friends and family. And I think while we've had influencers for many years, there's been this rise of the power of the influencer in this last year and a half that's been truly impressive. And an opportunity for brands like ours, especially to try and fill some of those voids, not just through influencers, but through some of our experts and even places like our call centers where we have tremendous experts available to consumers at all times. You don't want to do something wrong with hair color. Uh, you don't want to choose the wrong lipstick if you if you can avoid it. So we've built a few different things. We have a phenomenal call center that has the ability to truly help anybody get through a hair color challenge or help pick out something that's going to be great for them from a, a lipstick color to a, a foundation to an ingredient question. We also have rolled out or I should say we've already had many of them, but we've doubled down on our services available to consumers. So whether that's a skin diagnostic tool, a virtual try-on tool, a hair color try-on tool, and you see them in our social media activations, you see them in some of the influencer activations that we do, but you also see them on our websites. And that service capability really does help a consumer get excited about a product because you get to play with it but also have a level of confidence that the decision they're making is one that's going to work for them.
0: I want to I want to expand on that a little bit more because uh, you mentioned a couple of things including direct to consumer and e-commerce and and we saw much like we saw in other places uh, aggressive growth in 2020 you know as a result of expedited trends and new behaviors all that were heightened by the pandemic. So, you know, during a time when consumers were not shopping in person, you know, what are some of the strategies like you mentioned call centers and influencer marketing? Uh, you know, what are some other strategies that L'Oreal used to kind of keep the consumers engaged and continue to push, you know, some of the important things like sales?
1: I really think a lot of it came back to the that opportunity around services. How do we build tools that create an experience on behalf of the consumer, it's not just friends and family that you were missing. You were missing the opportunity. If you were a luxury consumer uh, or one of the beauty counter consumers that would walk into a Sephora or walk into a Lord and Taylor or walk into a Neiman Marcus uh, or a Macy's, you would normally have that consultative experience with, uh, with that amazing consultant who could help you pick the right thing, find the right thing. Uh, and I think our push into that services space really became an opportunity f- to fulfill that gap on behalf of, of consumers. Uh, we made e-commerce simpler and easier everywhere that we possibly could. And obviously, we'll, we'll continue to do so. We made sure that our products were available across the different e-commerce retailers so that consumers could easily find them and, and get access to them, uh, again, as much as we possibly could. And I, I think the the opportunity to really be available to consumers whenever whenever they needed us and whenever they had a question, uh, and to inspire them along the way. So I think there were some really beautiful opportunities over the course of the past year where. We produced some beautiful video. We produced some really great storytelling. We did a lot of live events with our makeup artists demonstrating different looks, bringing some events to people from some of our spokespeople to show them hair color tricks or how it worked on somebody else. And those type of opportunities, I think, fulfilled a lot of customer demand to try and make sure, again, that they were making the right decision, but that they were also feeling confident in the the choices they were making and that they had an opportunity to play a bit because I do think in this last year, it was important for us all to find moments of joy and play as well.
0: With so many options to reach consumers, and you mentioned a few um, during our chat, but how important is kind of L'Oreal's presence across kind of the different mediums, such as linear and digital and social and even connected TV? And, you know, how are you kind of differentiating between them in terms of the objectives um, that L'Oreal has uh, for its media?
1: When I look across the different video viewing channels specifically, because that's really where your, your question right honed in mostly on the, the video channels, and I'll talk about all of them, but when, you, when we think about the video channels, I do really, we, not me, but we as an organization, really do plan them holistically. Uh, part of that is to make sure that we get the best efficiency and efficacy out of the, the reach and, and frequency that we're looking for. Part of that is to make sure that we're meeting consumers wherever consumers are. So... I don't look at video in isolation of linear versus digital. It's never a versus, it's an and and a with. And it, when you step back and you think about the consumer perspective on video viewing, and I'm sure your audience probably feels this way, at least I hope they do. I'm sure you and I do as well. I don't just choose to watch things on my linear television. I don't just choose to watch things on my, uh, on my iPhone or on my iPad or on my computer uh, or on any of the connected devices that are sitting in my living room. Um, and I will admit I'm overly indulgent in all of the different places that I could connect <laughs> with content. I have it all. Uh, and I do watch advertising on, on all of it. I like to be a consumer of the, of the advertising that we have out there. I think the, the approach always has to be consumer first. You always have to consider how is a consumer watching this How is it? What is it going to mean to them in this space? And how do you make it valuable to them in that space? We are particular in making sure that the advertising that we buy is a good consumer experience. And by that, I mean, not just the creative that we put forward, because obviously that needs to be a good consumer experience as well, but the environment that we put it in and the user format that it ultimately ends up in as well. We try not to make things interruptive. We try to make them additive. We try to make sure that we're not acting like a toddler trying to get into your face, but that we behave in a way that's respectful of the consumer's time. So I am all for lighter ad loads. I'm all for no mid-rolls in short-form video, no audio on in a banner video from day one, right? These are things that we know as consumers, when we see them, we don't like them. So as brands, I think we need to make the decision to not purchase them because we don't want to encourage them. And then we encourage our media partners to help us create more ad units and places of of ad experiences that are a positive viewing experience for the the consumer. And that means asking our, our network partners for lighter ad loads. It means looking at our Um, CTV partners or OTT partners and asking for things like pause ads. Pause ads are beautiful, right? If you've seen any, if you've paused your streaming service and gotten that big, beautiful screen in your living room to show up with just a static ad unit, that's a billboard in somebody's living room. Why wouldn't I want that? That's a tremendous opportunity to be there, but also be politely engaged and create an impression.
0: No, and and we couldn't agree more with that. You know, we've, We've already come to understand some of consumers insight into things like pause ads and and integrations outside of your traditional ad breaks. And, you know, for the most part, what we've seen is that they don't feel like it's intrusive. They feel like it's relevant uh, and and they're just happy to be able to get some sort of brand, you know, integration um, without having to be taken away from their content. So it, it kind of tying to that, you know, you have been quoted as saying, you know, quote, advertising when done well should be a service to the consumer, end quote. And and we're kind of talking on that subject now, but what what does it take to get back to the art of advertising? Is it is it innovative ad formats like you mentioned, or is it a focus on advertising within the content itself and in the creatives? What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. It's a, it, you know, it's a passion project of mine to, to focus on this. Part of it is exactly what we just discussed. It's about where the ad unit lives and what the ad experience is. And if we look back at, at consumers today, I mean, they're opting out of advertising right, left, and sideways, right? The um, sheer volume of, of consumers who are choosing to pay for ad-free content as opposed to allow themselves that value exchange of I'll watch the advertising in order to get free content. Um, it's disturbing the volume that, that, that is shifting. Uh, we've got the deprecation of the third-party cookie. We've got the, the um, iOS 14.5 and 15, we think is going to take away the, the tracking of emails as well. There's all of these transitions happening. And as we watch consumer sentiment, consumers are frustrated with the advertising industry. Nobody wants to be followed around by that lamp that they already purchased. Uh, there are things you wouldn't do if somebody walked into your store. Right, you wouldn't uh, follow them out of the store with a basket of goods they left behind, going, "Hey, are you sure you don't want this? Come on back. You know, I'll get two for one. I'll ship it to your house. I'll drop it off. I'll follow you home." Right? I mean, maybe you thought you left it by accident. You might follow them out and be like, "Are you sure?" Uh, but you wouldn't really chase them down the street, or at least you shouldn't. You wouldn't keep asking the same person out on a date ten times after they ignored you the first four in the same week, right? These are just common courtesy moments that if we think about how we're behaving in advertising online and how that would translate into a live human experience, you would never do that to another, another person because it wouldn't be polite, it wouldn't be additive, and it, you know it would create a negative consumer experience for them at the end of the day. So I like to think that we should encourage ourselves to really think about how do we create positive consumer experiences with advertising. And how do we make sure that advertising is additive to the consumer experience? Part of that comes, like I said, with making sure that the creative is something that's additive. So is it engaging? Is it educational? Is it entertaining? Creative can be a lot of things. Just being annoying is not helpful. So how do you make sure that it brings value to the consumer? Part of that is making sure that it's in a positive environment. My grandmother always said, show me who your friends are and I'll show you who you are or you are the company that you keep right so are we in advertising spaces that make sense we solve for things like like that by not necessarily purchasing on the open exchange but creating our own kind of private exchange with things like 4,000 sites that we've focused in on that have ads.txt, that have uh, viewability standards that we are, that we find very important, that have the content and context of what we think our brand should and could participate in, uh, but also have light ad loads. They're not stuffed with ads on any given page. We're looking for all of those things to make a good, positive consumer experience so that when you see our ad, you think of us in a positive way, not in a negative way, um, so those are just some of the little pieces that we're trying to, to pull together. And then, of course, it's the, it's the content with the, the content and context piece of it, which is always super important. How do you make sure that the content that you're surrounding and the context that you're in makes it feel like that ad belongs there and doesn't feel completely out of place?
0: Let's touch on something you actually just mentioned um, again, which is, you know, you, you've mentioned this in the past, and, and I think everyone's kind of aware of this, but L'Oreal is fairly strict as an organization, right, about verification and making sure that you are avoiding places with fraud and that content and context is being seen, uh, and your creatives are being seen in environments that are appropriate for the brand. Now, you know, given that cautious nature, what is your approach to considering and, and testing new innovations and you know, naturally the need for flexibility that comes with it?
1: Sure. I mean, we love innovation. Uh, we love trying to to test into new places. When you talk about innovation, are you talking specifically about the innovation of the technology and the tracking and kind of where that world is going or innovation in creative units and other other places?
0: You know, more so in creative and, and innovation in and advertising units and formats, but I, I feel like there's probably some relevancy with tech and data and what we're able to do from a privacy and legislation standpoint. So, you know, we're happy to learn from either standpoint what what your thoughts are on innovation and how you handle that as a strict organization.
1: Sure. I think the from a technology and tech perspective, we're always looking to to test and try. Look, we're we're all facing all of the the bird named solutions of flock and fledge and swan and pelican. Everybody's got a new potential solution out there for Uh, tracking IDs and trying to help stitch together consumers across the different ecosystems. We're going to test all of them. We're going to test UDIDs. We're going to test uh, things like fabric, right? We're looking at all of the different opportunities that are available to us to try and get to a future of proper attribution and measurement while maintaining consumer safety uh, and respecting our consumers. I think the the challenge will be getting all of the partners to agree to standards and uh, consistency across the ecosystem. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in setting new benchmarks for the work that we do as marketers and advertisers. This isn't just L'Oreal. This is across the ecosystem, right? We're all going to have to have new benchmarks, new KPIs, new ways of measuring. I think for us, the opportunity really lies in making sure that we're also thinking about the top of the funnel and not just the bottom of the funnel. It's the bottom of the funnel that ultimately gets hurt the most by all of this lack of tracking capability. The top of the funnel is where I think brands have a tremendous opportunity. Brands like ours, especially have a tremendous opportunity to continue to create consumer awareness, to continue to offer opportunities for serendipity of discovery. And I always get challenged, um, I think you know this, especially, I always get challenged a little bit like by the concepts of lookalike models. I do like a good lookalike model. I think they're very handy, but I think there's also a challenge that they can be sometimes limiting because you can overlook alike into a spiral of only talking to people who already buy your product or look like people who buy your product. And if I'm only talking to people who look like people who buy my product, I may be, listening, I may be missing an entire new potential subset. And so how do I make sure that I open the aperture a bit to allow for that serendipity and allow for that discovery. And that serendipity and discovery audience is not going to have the same conversion. It's not going to have the same KPIs as the audience that is part of my lookalike. But their long-term value to me and the time that I spend trying to engage them into my business could be long-term valuable uh, for us. Obviously, we need the ability to be able to measure that. We need the ability to be able to see that through. Um, On the the other side of innovation, when it comes to... um, Thinking about the creatives that we use, thinking about how we push into new media channels. We are playing with everything there as well, right? We're big partners on TikTok. I'm sure you've probably seen, if you're on TikTok, you've definitely seen L'Oreal. I'd be shocked if you didn't uh, see one of our brands there. Um, and we've seen some really nice success there. Uh, we love to play with new opportunities from our existing media partners. We love to play with new opportunities uh, from new media partners as well. Again, always with the thought of consumer safety first, brand safety second, let's make sure that we're doing this in a consumer-friendly way and a brand safe way so that we are creating the best opportunity for both.
0: L'Oreal's marketing strategy has traditionally been focused on product, but recently the company created its own seven-episode series called Run La Hair Show. Can you share more about the growing trend of brands moving into content creation in the television space?
1: I think there's tremendous opportunity for brands in that space. Part of the opportunity is to really develop stories, not just around your products, but around how the products are used and how they fit into a consumer's life. Uh, I think when we think about the traditional world of, Advertising, we're putting an image that is a very glossy story in front of a consumer. Uh, We may be then expanding that into influencers where influencers are sharing our stories on our behalf. And then when you move into the content space, you develop this whole new opportunity to tell a deeper, broader story on behalf of the brand and on behalf of the business. The content space is one that I think we're going to continue to explore over the next few years. And I think it's a space that offers tremendous opportunity for us to, like I said, open up that aperture and develop more rich and developed stories that aren't just about our products, but actually include our products as part of a broader storytelling experience. And we do have some absolutely beautiful stories to tell, especially as a business that's been around for over
0: hundred years. Speaking of the ever-growing you know, content space and, and television as a whole, as more AVOD and SVOD services pop up, what does this do to the advertising market? How, how is L'Oreal adjusting to this kind of new and ever-changing environment?
1: It's such an interesting space. We are uh, leaning in to all of the different video potential opportunities that we have available to us. We are excited about each of them. Some of them come with our existing network partners. And so there's an opportunity to extend and enhance our already existing network buys into into spaces that include their linear fluidity um, and digital placements. Always very exciting. Uh, It's an opportunity for the networks and for the, the television industry, I think as a whole, to really lean in and create experiences for the next generation of consumers. We know that the next generation of consumers wants things more on demand. They want to get all of the streaming in one place at one time. They want the opportunity to binge on a show when it comes out, as opposed to having to wait for a weekly episodic moment. How do we lean into that? How do we make sure that we can participate in that? And I think that it does change how how you think about the ad units that you put into that space. In a weekly episodic, you could then have the same maybe creative image every single week for six weeks or eight weeks as that as that network show continued to, to move forward. If you're going to binge watch all eight episodes or all 13 episodes or whatever they produced in that one moment, then you're going to need to have... Um, two things. One, the network or the producer, or the, the video platform that you're working with needs to have a polite load. So I want them to know that I, as a consumer and binging on this show, I've already watched four ad units leading into this. It's time to maybe just let me have my moment of indulgence and not continue to be over the head with advertising. Cause that's not going to do anybody any good. That's not a service to the consumer. It's not a service to the brand. Um, But also if I've walked away from it and I've come back a day later and I'm going to watch two or three more episodes, that's a very tight window to have two of my ad units back to back to the same consumer. And we can tell that it's the same consumer because they're logged in, right? So how do I start to make my advertising a bit more episodic? And I think from a um, brand perspective, it means we have to start to think differently about the volume of creative we produce, but the messaging that's in that creative as well to give us potential storytelling opportunities, or at least new opportunities to show the product in a slightly different way every time the consumer sees it so that we continue to bring them through the product.
0: Switching gears a bit, L'Oreal's philanthropic efforts are widely known with commitments and responsibilities around the planet, promoting inclusion and empowering communities, and creating safe and quality products. Can you share more about the company's responsible and sustainable business model?
1: We are so proud of the work that we are doing in this space. I am so proud to be a part of an organization that is so dedicated uh, to sustainability and uh, environmental impact, diversity, inclusion. If you have a moment right now and, and um, spend some time on LinkedIn or if you're at Hudson Yards or walking down Fifth Avenue or seeing any of our other um, placements in the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal or some of the other Places we actually are talking about our sense of purpose campaign really for the first time as L'Oreal talking about L'Oreal. We don't talk about L'Oreal as a group very often. Uh, We're often very focused on all of the beautiful brands that sit within the portfolio. And there's just been a really wonderful moment as our CEO has come to his first hundred days in office where he rallied the entire organization together to really put forward our sense of purpose, create the beauty that moves the world. And to focus on fighting climate change, managing water sustainability, respecting biodiversity, preserving natural resources, uh, really making sure that we have equity and inclusion and diversity in our talent and in our leadership, it's a beautiful moment to be a part of this company. And the work that we do, I, I won't spend time going into all of it because we could be here for days talking about what we're doing for managing water sustainability and Hyperloop factory or Waterloop factories and all sorts of really amazing things. Um, but it is it is a focus for us. And we take our commitment to climate change and our commitment to uh, biodiversity and protecting natural resources and the commitment we've made for 2030 uh, very strongly. And it, it threads itself through almost all of the conversations we have even about our media where you wouldn't necessarily think about it. So I'm having fun and interesting conversations about what is the, the cost of actually serving our media to the environment ad serving takes energy, right? And so let's figure that out. Let's see what that means.
0: That is very interesting stuff. And it's great to hear the passion and the work that L'Oreal is doing. We like to end our conversation with a prediction on the future of television. Based on all of the growth, the data, the trends we are seeing to date, and you know a lot about data, um, what does the industry look like in five years from now? And specifically, you know, what are the characteristics of the key players that are thriving?
1: I love being able to drag out my crystal ball. On occasion, the space is super interesting. Video is not going away. Consumers wanting great storytelling, access to to watching, hearing, listening and having emotional stories told to them or being able to participate with video content is not changing. And I, I think that's going to continue to grow. And if you look back at the the ratings that shows did years ago, when they were just on linear versus the ratings they do today, when you add the linear and the digital, we're still getting to much of the same reach. It's just across a wider breadth of, of locations where consumers want to play. I think the, The partners that succeed in a five year future in that space are the ones that are following where the consumers want to be and not forcing them to be where they are. And so the proliferation of the content will continue to to broaden. Uh, Consumers I think will be able to then see it wherever they wanna see it, whether they see it uh, paid for with advertising or paid for by their own dollars. And I think the partners that continue to succeed will be the ones that find ways of allowing the advertising and the brand integrations to feel organic, unintrusive, and additive to the experience.
0: Do you foresee a drastic change in the ad model and the devices that people are streaming on today?
1: I think there's an opportunity, and I wish I had the crystal ball to tell you, like, this is what the ad model needs to look like because then I could you know, make a gazillion dollars running the next ad model. And I don't have that answer, but I do think there is a, we are ripe for a change in how the ad models work today.
0: Shannon, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to see you and speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Spotless.
1: My pleasure.